0: Part one of Saint Joan Preface. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Saint Joan Preface by George Bernard Shaw. Preface Part One. Joan the Original and Presumptuous Joan of Arc, a village girl from the Vosges, was born about fourteen twelve burnt for heresy witchcraft and sorcery in fourteen thirty one rehabilitated after a fashion in fourteen fifty six designated venerable in nineteen o four declared blessed in nineteen o eight and finally canonized in nineteen twenty she is the most notable warrior saint in the christian calendar and the queerest fish among the eccentric worthies of the middle ages though a professed and most pious catholic and the projector of a crusade against the hussites she was in fact one of the first protestant martyrs she was also one of the first apostles of nationalism and the first french practitioner of napoleonic realism in warfare as distinguished from the sporting ransom gambling chivalry of her time she was the pioneer of rational dressing for women and like queen christina of sweden two centuries later to say nothing of catalina de Arrozo and innumerable obscure heroines who have disguised themselves as men to serve as soldiers and sailors she refused to accept the specific woman's lot and dressed and fought and lived as men did as she contrived to assert herself in all these ways with such force that she was famous throughout western europe before she was out of her teens indeed she never got out of them it is hardly surprising that she was judicially burnt ostensibly for a number of capital crimes which we no longer punish as such but essentially for what we call unwomanly and insufferable presumption at eighteen joan's pretensions were beyond those of the proudest pope or the haughtiest emperor she claimed to be the ambassador and plenipotentiary of god and to be in effect a member of the church triumphant whilst still in the flesh on earth she patronized her own king and summoned the english king to repentance and obedience to her commands she lectured talked down and overruled statesmen and prelates she pooh poohed the plans of generals leading their troops to victory on plans of her own she had an unbounded and quite unconcealed contempt for official opinion judgment and authority and for war office tactics and strategy had she been a sage and monarch in whom the most venerable hierarchy and the most illustrious dynasty converged her pretensions and proceedings would have been as trying to the official mind as the pretensions of caesar were to cassius as her actual condition was pure upstart there were only two opinions about her one was that she was miraculous the other that she was unbearable joan and socrates If Joan had been malicious, selfish, cowardly, or stupid, she would have been one of the most odious persons known to history instead of one of the most attractive. If she had been old enough to know the effect she was producing on the men whom she humiliated by being right when they were wrong, and had learned to flatter and manage them, she might have lived as long as Queen Elizabeth. But she was too young and rustical and inexperienced to have any such arts. When she was thwarted by men whom she thought fools, she made no secret of her opinion of them or her impatience with their folly, and she was naive enough to expect them to be obliged to her for setting them right and keeping them out of mischief. Now it is always hard for superior wits to understand the fury roused by their exposures of the stupidities of comparative dullards even socrates for all his age and experience did not defend himself at his trial like a man who understood the long accumulated fury that had burst on him and was clamouring for his death his accuser if born twenty-three hundred years later might have been picked out of any first-class carriage on a suburban railway during the evening or morning rush from or to the city for he had really nothing to say except that he and his like could not endure being shown up as idiots every time socrates opened his mouth socrates unconscious of this was paralyzed by his sense that somehow he was missing the point of the attack he petered out after he had established the fact that he was an old soldier and a man of honourable life and that his accuser was a silly snob he had no suspicion of the extent to which his mental superiority had roused fear and hatred against him in the hearts of men towards whom he was conscious of nothing but good will and good service contrast with napoleon if socrates was as innocent as this at the age of seventy it may be imagined how innocent joan was at the age of seventeen now socrates was a man of argument operating slowly and peacefully on men's minds whereas joan was a woman of action operating with impetuous violence on their bodies that no doubt is why the contemporaries of socrates endured him so long and why joan was destroyed before she was fully grown but both of them combined a terrifying ability with a frankness personal modesty and benevolence which made the furious dislike to which they fell victims absolutely unreasonable and therefore inapprehensible by themselves napoleon also possessed of terrifying ability but neither frank nor disinterested had no illusions as to the nature of his popularity when he was asked how the world would take his death he said it would give a gasp of relief but it is not so easy for mental giants who neither hate nor intend to injure their fellows to realize that nevertheless their fellows hate mental giants and would like to destroy them not only enviously because the juxtaposition of a superior wounds their vanity but quite humbly and honestly because it frightens them fear will drive men to any extreme and the fear inspired by a superior being is a mystery which cannot be reasoned away being immeasurable it is unbearable when there is no presumption or guarantee of its benevolence and moral responsibility in other words when it has no official status the legal and conventional superiority of herod and pilate and of annas and caiaphas inspires fear But the fear, being a reasonable fear of measurable and avoidable consequences, which seem salutary and protective, is bearable, whilst the strange superiority of Christ and the fear it inspires elicit a shriek of crucify him from all who cannot divine its benevolence. Socrates has to drink the hemlock, Christ to hang on the cross, and Joan to burn at the stake whilst napoleon though he ends in st helena at least dies in his bed there and many terrifying but quite comprehensible official scoundrels die natural deaths in all the glory of the kingdoms of the world proving that it is far more dangerous to be a saint than to be a conqueror those who have been both like mahomet and joan have found that it is the conqueror who must save the saint and that defeat and capture mean martyrdom. Joan was burnt without a hand lifted on her own side to save her. The comrades she had led to victory, and the enemies she had disgraced and defeated, the French king she had crowned, and the English king, whose crown she had kicked into the Loire, were equally glad to be rid of her. Was Joan innocent or guilty? as this result could have been produced by a crapulous inferiority as well as by a sublime superiority the question which of the two was operative in joan's case has to be faced it was decided against her by her contemporaries after a very careful and conscientious trial And the reversal of the verdict twenty-five years later in form a rehabilitation of Joan was really only a confirmation of the validity of the coronation of Charles the seventh. It is the more impressive reversal by a unanimous posterity culminating in her canonization that has quashed the original proceedings and put her judges on their trial, which so far has been much more unfair than their trial of her nevertheless the rehabilitation of fourteen fifty six corrupt job as it was really did produce evidence enough to satisfy all reasonable critics that joan was not a common termagant not a harlot not a witch not a blasphemer no more an idolater than the Pope himself, and not ill-conducted in any sense apart from her soldiering, her wearing of men's clothes, and her audacity, but on the contrary good-humoured, an intact virgin, very pious, very temperate, we should call her meal of bread, soaked in the common wine, which is the drinking-water of France, aesthetic, very kindly, and though a brave and hardy soldier, unable to endure loose language or licentious conduct. She went to the stake without a stain on her character, except the overweening presumption, the superbity, as they called it, that led her thither. It would, therefore, be waste of time now to prove that the Joan of the first part of the Elizabethan Chronicle play of Henry the VI, supposed to have been tinkered by Shakespeare, grossly libels her in its concluding scenes in deference to jingo patriotism. The mud that was thrown at her has dropped off by this time so completely that there is no need for any modern writer to wash up after it. What is far more difficult to get rid of is the mud that is being thrown at her judges, and the whitewash which disfigures her beyond recognition. When jingo scurrility had done its worst to her, sectarian scurrility, in this case Protestant scurrility, used her stake to beat the Roman Catholic Church and the Inquisition. The easiest way to make these institutions the villains of a melodrama was to make the maid its heroine. That melodrama may be dismissed as rubbish joan had a far fairer trial from the church and the inquisition than any prisoner of her type and in her situation gets nowadays in any official secular court and the decision was strictly according to law and she was not a melodramatic heroine that is a physically beautiful love-lorn parasite on an equally beautiful hero but a genius and a saint about as completely the opposite of a melodramatic heroine as it is possible for a human being to be let us be clear about the meaning of the terms a genius is a person who seeing farther and probing deeper than other people has a different set of ethical valuations from theirs and has energy enough to give effect to this extra vision and its valuations in whatever manner best suits his or her specific talents A saint is one who, having practiced heroic virtues and enjoyed revelations or powers of the order which the church classes technically as supernatural, is eligible for canonization. If a historian is an anti-feminist and does not believe women to be capable of genius in the traditional masculine departments, he will never make anything of Joan, whose genius was turned to practical account mainly in soldiering and politics if he is rationalist enough to deny that saints exist and to hold that new ideas cannot come otherwise than by conscious ratiocination, he will never catch joan's likeness her ideal biographer must be free from nineteenth-century prejudices and biases must understand the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Holy Roman Empire much more intimately than our Whig historians have ever understood them, and must be capable of throwing off sex partialities and their romance, and regarding woman as the female of the human species, and not as a different kind of animal, with specific charms and specific imbecilities. Joan's Good Looks to put the last point roughly any book about joan which begins by describing her as a beauty may be at once classed as a romance not one of joan's comrades in village court or camp even when they were straining themselves to please the king by praising her ever claimed that she was pretty All the men who alluded to the matter declared most emphatically that she was unattractive sexually, to a degree that seemed to them miraculous, considering that she was in the bloom of youth, and neither ugly, awkward, deformed, nor unpleasant in her person. The evident truth is that like most women of her hardy managing type, she seemed neutral in the conflict of sex because men were too much afraid of her to fall in love with her she herself was not sexless in spite of the virginity she had vowed up to a point and preserved to her death she never excluded the possibility of marriage for herself but marriage with its preliminary of the attraction pursued and capture of a husband was not her business she had something else to do byron's formula man's love is of man's life a thing apart tis woman's whole existence did not apply to her any more than to George Washington or any other masculine worker on the heroic scale. Had she lived in our time, picture postcards might have been sold of her as a general. They would not have been sold of her as a sultana. Nevertheless, there is one reason for crediting her with a very remarkable face a sculptor of her time in orleans made a statue of a helmeted young woman with a face that is unique in art in point of being evidently not an ideal face but a portrait and yet so uncommon as to be unlike any real woman one has ever seen it is surmised that Joan served unconsciously as the sculptor's model there is no proof of this but those extraordinarily spaced eyes raise so powerfully the question if this woman be not joan who is she that i dispense with further evidence and challenge those who disagree with me to prove a negative it is a wonderful face but quite neutral from the point of view of the operatic beauty fancier such a fancier may perhaps be finally chilled by the prosaic fact that joan was the defendant in a suit for breach of promise of marriage and that she conducted her own case and won it joan's social position by class joan was the daughter of a working farmer who was one of the headmen of his village and transacted its feudal business for it with the neighboring squires and their lawyers when the castle in which the villagers were entitled to take refuge from raids became derelict he organized a combination of half a dozen farmers to obtain possession of it so as to occupy it when there was any danger of invasion as a child joan could please herself at times with being the young lady of this castle her mother and brothers were able to follow and share her fortune at court without making themselves notably ridiculous these facts leave us no excuse for the popular romance that turns every heroine into either a princess or a beggar maid in the somewhat similar case of shakespeare a whole inverted pyramid of wasted research has been based on the assumption that he was an illiterate labourer in the face of the plainest evidence that his father was a man of business and at one time a very prosperous one married to a woman of some social pretensions there is the same tendency to drive joan into the position of a hired shepherd girl though a hired shepherd-girl in Remy would have deferred to her as the young lady of the farm. The difference between Joan's case and Shakespeare's is that Shakespeare was not illiterate. He had been to school, and knew as much Latin and Greek as most university passmen retain—that is, for practical purposes, none at all. Joan was absolutely illiterate. "'I do not know A from B,' she said but many princesses at that time and for long after might have said the same marie antoinette for instance at joan's age could not spell her own name correctly but this does not mean that joan was an ignorant person or that she suffered from the diffidence and sense of social disadvantage now felt by people who cannot read or write if she could not write letters she could and did dictate them and attach full and indeed excessive importance to them when she was called a shepherd-lass to her face, she very warmly resented it and challenged any woman to compete with her in the household arts of the mistresses of well-furnished houses. She understood the political and military situation in France much better than most of our newspaper-fed university women graduates understands the corresponding situation of their own country today. Her first convert was the neighboring commandant at Vaucouleurs, and she converted him by telling him about the defeat of the Dauphin's troops at the Battle of Herrings so long before he had official news of it that he concluded she must have had a divine revelation. This knowledge of and interest in public affairs was nothing extraordinary among farmers in a war-swept countryside politicians came to the door too often sword in hand to be disregarded joan's people could not afford to be ignorant of what was going on in the feudal world they were not rich and joan worked on the farm as her father did driving the sheep to pasture and so forth But there is no evidence or suggestion of sordid poverty, and no reason to believe that Joan had to work as a hired servant works, or indeed to work at all, when she preferred to go to confession, or dawdle about, waiting for visions, and listening to the church bells to hear voices in them. In short, much more of a young lady, and even of an intellectual, than most of the daughters of our petty bourgeoisie. Joan's Voices and Visions joan's voices and visions have played many tricks with her reputation they have been held to prove that she was mad that she was a liar and impostor that she was a sorceress she was burned for this and finally that she was a saint they do not prove any of these things but the variety of the conclusions reached show how little our matter-of-fact historians know about other people's minds or even about their own There are people in the world whose imagination is so vivid that when they have an idea, it comes to them as an audible voice, sometimes uttered by a visual figure. Criminal lunatic asylums are occupied largely by murderers who have obeyed voices. Thus, a woman may hear voices telling her that she must cut her husband's throat and strangle her child as they lie asleep, and she may feel obliged to do what she is told. By a medical-legal superstition it is held in our courts that criminals whose temptations present themselves under these illusions are not responsible for their actions and must be treated as insane. But the seers of visions and the hearers of revelations are not always criminals. The inspirations and intuitions and unconsciously reasoned conclusions of genius sometimes assume similar illusions socrates luther swedenborg blake saw visions and heard voices just as st francis and st joan did if newton's imagination had been of the same vividly dramatic kind he might have seen the ghost of pythagoras walk into the orchard and explain why the apples were falling such an illusion would have invalidated neither the theory of gravitation nor newton's general sanity What is more, the visionary method of making the discovery would not be a whit more miraculous than the normal method. The test of sanity is not the normality of the method, but the reasonableness of the discovery. If Newton had been informed by Pythagoras that the moon was made of green cheese, then Newton would have been locked up gravitation being a reasoned hypothesis which fitted remarkably well into the copernican version of the observed physical facts of the universe established newton's reputation for extraordinary intelligence and would have done so no matter how fantastically he had arrived at it yet this theory of gravitation is not so impressive a mental feat as his astounding chronology which establishes him as the king of mental conjurors but a bedlamite king whose authority no one now accepts On the subject of the eleventh horn of the beast seen by the prophet Daniel, he was more fantastic than Joan, because his imagination was not dramatic but mathematical, and therefore extraordinarily susceptible to numbers. Indeed, if all his works were lost except his chronology, we should say that he was as mad as a hatter. As it is, who dares diagnose Newton as a madman? in the same way joan must be judged a sane woman in spite of her voices because they never gave her any advice that might not have come to her from her mother's wit exactly as gravitation came to newton we can all see now especially since the late war threw so many of our women into military life that joan's campaigning could not have been carried on in petticoats this was not only because she did a man's work but because it was morally necessary that sex should be left out of the question as between her and her comrades in arms she gave this reason herself when she was pressed on the subject and the fact that this entirely reasonable necessity came to her imagination first as an order from god delivered through the mouth of st catherine does not prove that she was mad the soundness of the order proves that she was unusually sane but its form proves that her dramatic imagination played tricks with her senses her policy was also quite sound nobody disputes that the relief of orleans followed up by the coronation at rheims of the dauphin as a counter-blow to the suspicions then current of his legitimacy and consequently of his title were military and political master-strokes that saved france they might have been planned by napoleon or any other illusion-proof genius they came to joan as an instruction from her council as she called her visionary saints but she was none the less an able leader of men for imagining her ideas in this way the evolutionary appetite what then is the modern view of joan's voices and visions and messages from god The 19th century said that they were delusions, but that as she was a pretty girl and had been abominably ill-treated and finally done to death by a superstitious rabble of medieval priests hounded on by a corrupt political bishop, it must be assumed that she was the innocent dupe of these delusions. The 20th century finds this explanation too vapidly commonplace and demands something more mystic i think the twentieth century is right because an explanation which amounts to joan being mentally defective instead of as she obviously was mentally excessive will not wash I cannot believe, nor if I could, could I expect all my readers to believe, as Joan did, that three ocularly visible well-dressed persons, named respectively St. Catherine, St. Margaret, and St. Michael, came down from heaven and gave her certain instructions with which they were charged by God for her. Not that such a belief would be more improbable or fantastic than some modern beliefs which we all swallow, but there are fashions and family habits in belief, and it happens that my fashion being Victorian and my family habit Protestant, I find myself unable to attach any such objective validity to the form of Joan's visions but that there are forces at work which use individuals for purposes far transcending the purpose of keeping these individuals alive and prosperous and respectable and safe and happy in the middle station in life which is all any good bourgeois can reasonably require is established by the fact that men will in the pursuit of knowledge and of social readjustments for which they will not be a penny the better and are indeed often many pence the worse face poverty infamy exile imprisonment dreadful hardship and death even the selfish pursuit of personal power does not nerve men to the efforts and sacrifices which are eagerly made in pursuit of extensions of our power over nature though these extensions may not touch the personal life of the seeker at any point there is no more mystery about this appetite for knowledge and power than about the appetite for food both are known as facts, and as facts only, the difference between them being that the appetite for food is necessary to the life of the hungry man and is therefore a personal appetite, whereas the other is an appetite for evolution and therefore a superpersonal need the diverse manners in which our imaginations dramatize the approach of the superpersonal forces is a problem for the psychologist not for the historian only the historian must understand that visionaries are neither impostors nor lunatics it is one thing to say that the figure joan recognized as st catherine was not really st catherine but the dramatization by joan's imagination of that pressure upon her of the driving force that is behind evolution which i have just called the evolutionary appetite it is quite another to class her visions with the vision of two moons seen by a drunken person or with broken spectres echoes and the like st catherine's instructions were far too cogent for that and the simplest french peasant who believes in apparitions of celestial personages to favored mortals is nearer to the scientific truth about joan than the rationalist and materialist historians and essayists who feel obliged to set down a girl who saw saints and heard them talking to her as either crazy or mendacious if joan was mad all christendom was mad too for people who believe devoutly in the existence of celestial personages are every whit as mad in that sense as the people who think they see them luther when he threw his ink-horn at the devil was no more mad than any other augustinian monk He had a more vivid imagination, and had perhaps eaten and slept less. That was all. The mere iconography does not matter. All the popular religions in the world are made apprehensible by an array of legendary personages with an almighty father and sometimes a mother and divine child as the central figures these are presented to the mind's eye in childhood and the result is a hallucination which persists strongly throughout life when it has been well impressed Thus, all the thinking of the hallucinated adult about the fountain of inspiration which is continually flowing in the universe, or about the promptings of virtue and the revulsions of shame, in short, about aspiration and conscience, both of which forces are matters of fact more obvious than electromagnetism, is thinking in terms of the celestial vision. And when, in the case of exceptionally imaginative persons, especially those practicing certain appropriate austerities, the hallucination extends from the mind's eye to the body's, the visionary sees Krishna or the Buddha or the Blessed Virgin or Saint Catherine, as the case may be. End of part one.